Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, February 5th, 2018, the Release What Memo edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. No Cristala this week, uh, but I'm going to be joined in bilateral bliss uh, for an America-centric discussion uh, by my other usual co-host, Scott Lucas, who's a Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? Oh, everything is wonderful and bigly, as the man in the White House would say. Indeed he would. This week, as implied there, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the hashtag release the memo uh, story that has dominated coverage of Washington, D.C. over the past week, a controversy that, depending on who you ask, involves either a conspiracy by the FBI to spy on U.S. citizens without due cause in pursuit of a vendetta against the president, or the shredding of multiple norms of good government uh, by Donald Trump and his enablers to muddy the waters as investigators seek to nail him for obstruction of justice. We're going to do it in two halves. First, we'll talk about the substance of the controversy. And don't worry, we'll explain what the memo actually is and what it's about and its implications for the Russia investigation and the relationship between the FBI and the rest of government. Second, we'll talk about hashtag release the memo as a media event. How did this story blow? up the way it did? And what does it tell us about the informational context in which American politics takes place these days? On Friday, after over a week of demands from conservatives online and on cable news, the White House authorized, at the request of the Republican majority on the House Intelligence Committee, the release of the memo. Drafted by committee chair Devin Nunes, this document had been much hyped as providing an account of inappropriate and perhaps illegal actions on the part of FBI investigators in pursuit of their investigation of Russian interference into the 2016 presidential election. If true, it was suggested this would add evidence in support of claims made with increasing frequency by President Trump and his supporters that hostile actors within the FBI and Justice Department were concocting a false case against him. Upon its release, it became apparent that this memo focused on an application made by investigators to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to monitor Trump campaign aide Carter Page, alleging that this had illegitimately and without full disclosure been based on claims made in a report compiled as anti-Trump opposition research by agents paid by the Trump campaign's Republican opponents and then later by the Democratic National Committee. A reminder of the context for all of this. The president and many close aides from his campaign and administration are the focus of investigation by a special counsel, Robert Mueller, into contacts with Russia, and now also there is strong reason to believe obstruction of justice. Mueller was appointed to that role after Trump fired FBI Director James Comey um, after he had allegedly sought, it appears, to pressure Comey to desist from pursuing former campaign aide and national security advisor Michael Flynn, uh, who was forced out of his job for lying about his contacts with Russia. That appointment, and stay with us here, that appointment uh, of Mueller was made by Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. The Attorney General Jeff Sessions, having much to Trump's anger, recused himself from oversight of the Russia investigation because of his own disclosed Russia ties. The strong suspicion is that Trump would like to use the brouhaha around this memo as basis for dismissing some or all of Mueller, Rosenstein, and Sessions in order to shut this investigation 
prosecution down, or at the very least lay the ground for dismissing its findings as prejudiced when they arrive. So, Scott... (laughs) That's every time I have to summarize this story in any way before we do a podcast, it just gets slightly harder to fit all the information in any kind of containable way into a, into a neat summary. So first up, uh, as I said in the in the introduction, we're going to try and limit ourselves to the substance and facts of this memo story before we move on to the, the broader context in which it sits. Um, so the president says uh, in the president's own way, uh, that this memo, quote, totally vindicates him. Um, even most Republicans haven't been going quite that far uh, in, in terms of their reaction to it, to it upon its release. But to what extent do you think the contents of this memo now released provide support for the suggestion that something fishy has gone on somewhere in the FBI's practice? Okay, first... We'll talk about the politics in a minute, but let's be clear what the aim of this memo was, written by a close Trump ally, former member of the Trump transition team. And it is to discredit the FBI, to discredit the Justice Department, and therefore to limit or even end, once and for all, the Trump-Russian investigation. So this is a political hit piece. Speaking in terms of, does it stand up as a document? Well, we got a word for this type of document in the South. It's got to do with cattle and manure, and uh, y'all put that together. Let me explain why. First, the central allegation of the document is that when the FBI went to get the warrant on Carter Page, Trump campaign advisor, uh, when they first sought it in July 2016, when it was granted in October 2016, along with warrants for surveillance of Russian officials and entities, the allegation in the memo is that the FBI withheld information, that it was basing this application on a uh, intelligence, private intelligence from Fusion GPS, which was a firm that compiled a dossier of contacts between Trump, his aides, and Russian officials in 2016. It's also known as the Steele dossier after the British, uh, former British intelligence officer Christopher Steele, and that this dossier in turn, because it was paid for at a certain point by the Democratic National Committee and by the Hillary Clinton campaign, this is a biased report, therefore the FBI is acting exclusively on a biased report, therefore this is a politically motivated warrant. Here's the problem with that claim. Carter Page was being monitored by the FBI since 2013, three years before the dossier and Christopher Steele and the campaign. He was being monitored because he was in discussions with Russian officials, and the FBI believed that these officials, at least one of whom was a member of the Russian intelligence services, were trying to recruit Page as an agent. Mm-hmm. Now, and I mean, and, and this is like we know. This as a as a fact because uh, they subsequently arrested a Russian agent who described uh, or was recorded describing their interactions with with Carter Page, effectively trying to, at a pretty low level, admittedly, but uh, test him out as a potential recruitable source. Yeah, in fact, there were actually three Russians that were picked up, but the one you're talking about is Alexander Podobny, uh, who was the member of the Russian intelligence services. Uh, Carter Page, in July of 2016, went to Russia, 
had meetings with Russian officials, including, according to sources, the head of Russia's big energy company, Rosneft, supposedly was discussing financial transactions with them. So the FBI uh, had multiple sources of intelligence. There was the Steele dossier, granted, but it also had many other sources to pursue such warrant. And remember that the FBI also had other leads. You know, June 2016, let's not forget, is the date of the first meeting between Trump staff, Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner among them, with Kremlin-linked operatives. Mm -hmm. So the Nunes memo tries to reduce all of this to the idea that it was just this one politically motivated dossier when, in fact, no, that was simply a small part of what was happening. There's then a second error that, and it's a deliberate error, that the document makes, which exposes the political uh, angle of it. And that is the Fusion GPS document, or as they called it, opposition research, was not commissioned by the Democrats initially. It was initially commissioned by a conservative Republican outlet, the Washington Free Beacon. Right. Back in the... uh a happier time when it was believed Donald Trump might not get the Republican yeah. nomination because he had many uh, rivals for that yeah. who were considered to be far preferable in the minds of uh, a large part of the party. So this is, you know, this is research during the primaries. The import here is, is that Fuji- Fusion GPS is not acting as a Democratic outlet. Fusion GPS just simply takes money from whomever will commission the research that's taken place. They then in turn contract to Christopher Steele. In other words, who's got no political skin in the game, although we, it transpires personally he doesn't like Donald Trump. I mean, that's, that's the second deception. And then there's a third uh, error in the document that actually proves the FBI, vindicates the FBI, and it's somewhat unusual. They sort of tack on a paragraph at the end to suddenly refer to someone named George Papadopoulos. Now, George Papadopoulos... Um, was a Trump campaign advisor, relatively young and experienced. But when he was taken on in March 2016, he decided he was going to set up a meeting between Trump and Vladimir Putin as part of promoting uh, the candidacy of Mr. Trump. In the course of this, he is you know, in contact with some Russian-linked officials, uh, including an academic in London, and they start to say to him, well, look, we can give you information which is damaging to Hillary Clinton. Now, this is part of the emails that were stolen by the Russians when they had computers. Uh, Papadopoulos, we know this occurred because in May, he meets Australia's top diplomat in the UK, Alexander Downer, in a London pub, and he brags about this. Downer then tells the U.S. intelligence services, look, you got a guy saying mm-hmm. he's being offered dirt from the Russians. And, of course, the FBI then proceed to start to act upon it, as do other Western intelligence agencies. So the memo on its final page referring to Papadopoulos actually proves the case. The FBI is working off of a number of different channels, a number of different leads that are taking place. Mm-hmm. So in short, the, the document collapses almost as soon as you read it. But what matters here is perception. And that is if people don't read it closely, if they just hear Fox News or Breitbart, they think, oh my God, this must be true. The FBI is pursuing a deep state coup against the president. Right. So the the maximalist logic of what this is all about then is that the uh, only evidence that exists against Carter Page is uh, generated by uh, an opposition research hit job concocted uh, by 
sources funded by the Clinton campaign. The FBI then takes that to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, uh, does not disclose its origins. They obtain, therefore, the right to surveil Carter Page illegitimately, and all that follows from that surveillance is therefore illegitimately obtained, and that without that, uh, there is no uh, foundation for the wider inquiry into Donald Trump and his associates uh, and the Russia connection more generally. And that seems um, to me to fall down on all sorts of grounds. Um, you know, first of all, it does not seem at all clear that the FBI did not disclose the nature of the uh, the nature of the evidence or the source of the evidence they had, like whether or not they used the words Hillary Clinton during the course of the briefing they gave the FISA court seems to be uncertain. But it's quite possible that they flagged up that it was the product of political research by people who were you know, disposed against Donald Trump. Um, we just don't know that quite yet, but it seems highly possible that it is A, true, and B, will become apparent soon enough. Second of all, it seems to be premised on the idea that this is the only reason why Carter Page was surveilled or how, how they could justify that. And as we've already outlined, like Carter Page was a, a a walking advertisement for his own compromised status for, it seems, years prior to, to any of these events. As early as 2013, you have him um, boasting about the fact that he's helping the Russian government with their policies in public. You have him giving documents uh, to Russian spies who are testing out whether or not he's amenable to compromise by, by doing that classic thing of asking them to, you know, someone to do, to do a favor for you. Um, you know, Carter Page seems to be, as anyone who's seen him being interviewed on television since all this scandal blew up will will have noticed, like a, a shockingly guileless and unreflective person when it comes to the possibility of being compromised. So, you know, there is evidence all around, much of it from the man's own mouth, that says, hey, I'm shady, maybe, like, keep an eye on me. So it seems like a big leap to say that this is the only thing uh, that was at the root of it. And then thirdly, the idea that, like, the whole ball game uh, basically depends on uh, getting at Carter Page in this one like through this one route just seems enormously misguided you know the um, for one thing even if the source of your evidence is a politically biased research operation that doesn't mean that it's not true so the underlying question any court's going to ask itself is not did the person who compiled this information like have love in their heart for the person that it's about? It's like looking at the broader context. Does it nevertheless give us reason to believe they did the thing that we're worried they might be doing? Uh, in, and if the answer is yes, then you know the idea that they're just going to shut the whole thing down because they, you know, they would they would prefer a more dispassionate person to produce the evidence uh, is ridiculous. And, but also, you know, we know that there is a raft of highly concerning material uh, with regard to the action you know uh, uh, with regard to the actions of various people during the course of this period we have Mike Flynn showing up on communications with the Russian ambassador I don't imagine Carter Page has anything to do with why the Russian ambassador in the United States is is surveilled um, you know we have emails uh, of the most 
ludicrously uh, embarrassing and self-incriminating nature uh, coming out of Donald Trump Jr. Uh, and who knows what other things as yet undisclosed that, that, that don't seem to be super hard to, to, to tie together in a narrative of poor behavior that Robert Mueller may have in his hands. So the main thing that struck me about this was, like, first of all, that it did not seem to work very well on its own terms as a way of undermining the legitimacy of surveilling Carter Page. And secondly, like the sheer weirdness of the implied notion that the entire edifice of Russia investigation depends on whether or not Carter Page, who, lest we forget, has not yet been charged with anything, uh, was a, a you know was an appropriate target for an investigation. Um, he is one part of a way bigger thing here. Whereas this, and this memo, which tries to blow a hole in that much bigger thing, has picked a very narrow target to, to aim at. Right? Yeah, I think that's a great summary. I mean, I just would extend on two points. The first is, as you said, and the Nunes memo just avoids this. Um, much of the information in the Steele dossier has subsequently been corroborated by information from other channels. You know, they just have happened to connect up, uh, including uh, those Carter Page meetings in Moscow in July of 2016. But your second point is a key one here, and that is, look, there, there's so much that is bigger in play here. Let's not forget one that has not been mentioned, I think, in the coverage, and that is, you know, Paul Manafort, who was Trump's campaign manager, had to step down in August of 2016. Mm-hmm because of material circulating openly that he had taken uh, a large amount of money, millions of dollars, from pro-Russian interest, for example, in the Ukraine. And indeed, Paul Manafort has subsequently been indicted Mm. on lobbying and finance charges. And we know that he was reaching out to the people he owed money to who are – speaking specifically here of the oligarch Oleg Deripaska – Upon establishing a, uh, an in for himself with the Trump campaign, he was very keen and explicitly keen to leverage this in some way to uh, mitigate his liabilities in, in that direction. And he was then intimately involved in running the Republican National Convention, where, as we know, the Republican National Campaign uh, or National campaign platform was altered in a very small number of ways by Donald Trump's campaign team, and one of those ways was uh, what, what under normal circumstances would be considered a rather obscure uh, series of pledges with regard to, to U.S.-Ukraine uh, policy. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, Manafort is another member of this rogues gallery of people who seem to have, at best, uh, opened themselves up uh, to charges of massive conflict of interest in terms of their connections with Russia. Yeah, but the the whole Nunes memo game is it's look over there. It is distraction. So it is look over there at the page incident by distortion and omission. Uh, it is part of what has gone on for months, let us not forget, uh, by Trump, by his allies, uh, to play look over there. So in the final paragraph, uh, it refers to the text between two FBI agents. Uh, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, who were exchanging private texts because they didn't like Trump very much. Well, shock. FBI agents don't like Donald Trump. The fact is, in no way has there ever been any tie between those texts and that this led to a compromised or biased investigation. But that is that is the thin read that you then try to make an entire bridge uh, to save Trump from 
let us not forget Special Counsel Robert Mueller, who, while all this is going on, is still beavering away trying to to make, I think, a, a watertight case against the president. I mean, jo- Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine made a pretty good point the other day, which is about the weird direction of causality that Donald Trump seems to have in his mind about all of this. Like, his logic is that the intelligence services, uh, including the FBI, hate him. They have it out for him. And as an expression of that hatred, they have made it their mission to concoct, uh, using fake evidence, uh, a series of baseless charges and run an investigation off the back of them uh, against him. Um, Whereas the more obvious explanation for everything that's going on, given that we everything that we know tells us that you know Republican that the, that, the, that the FBI institutionally tends to lean Republican, and the national security state types are not people who normally make it their mission to uh, to attack and undermine right of center Republican presidents, um, the more likely explanation is that. From prior to his election, people in the intelligence world have been deeply concerned about the swirling conflicts of interest and possible compromise uh, uh, surrounding Donald Trump's campaign aides and their relationship with Russia and the policy positions Donald Trump has been adopting possibly as a result, and that they are investigating him uh, uh, on those grounds because they are legitimately concerned, but what they're finding is leading them not to think well of him. So, like, he... Because he's incapable, it seems, of thinking about anything except in terms of like personal enmity and grievance detached from any objective weighing of the facts, he assumes that every negative conclusion that they reach about him and every uh, piece of new evidence that they put in the wall that they're building against him can only be motivated by, by prejudice when, in fact, the negative feelings they have are just growing the more they find out about what he's done. Yeah. I mean, but... I'm not going to let him off the hook. This is what human beings do when they're in serious trouble. I mean, Richard Nixon did this in 1973-74 when he declared that there was a witch hunt against him by agencies, probably knowing full well with another part of his brain that he was covering up uh, a very big scandal. But in this case, let's let's put this to rest because I want to be very clear for the listeners out there. James Comey, then director of the FBI, was so concerned in 2016 that he appear uh, that he not appear to be biased over the election that I think he made a serious mistake when two weeks before the vote he announced the reopening of the investigation into Hillary Clinton and her emails at the same time Comey never breathed a word before the election about what was clearly an, already then an FBI inquiry into the Trump campaign so the idea that the FBI from the get-go was trying to do down Trump who praised the FBI in early November for being outstanding for reopening the Clinton investigation. That evaporates. But what I think you touch upon is something that is very, very interesting, and that is that in the course of then pursuing this investigation after the election, when Michael Flynn gets caught up talking to the Russian ambassador, when Flynn then lies to the FBI, when it then becomes clear that Flynn is connected with other officials, when Trump himself asks Comey for loyalty and to say, I am not a target of the investigation, Go back and look at when James Comey testified before Congress and he expressed his regret over that intervention before the election over the Clinton emails. Mm-hmm. And part of it is a regret that, in fact, in trying not to appear biased, he'd done the opposite. But part of it appears to be a regret 
look, look at what I opened the door for. Uh, now, does that mean that James Comey, therefore, is not being objective in his assessment of Donald Trump? Probably quite right, but I think there's a good deal of information to back up that uh, tilt in his views. Mm. I mean, trying to uh, – as we project forward um, based on what seems to be coming out of the, the, the investigation right now, like it – it feels like a lot of the purchase that the investigate that the Mueller investigation is is getting against the president himself uh, hinges on obstruction of justice, not so much on evidence of underlying underlying malevolent collusion with the Russians during the course of the election campaign, and therefore, like one plausible endpoint that we get to is where we have. A variety of charges against uh, perhaps uh, campaign and administration officials for lying to the FBI and or um, a determination that the president at the very least uh, ought to be pulled up for obstruction of justice by those who have the authority to do it, which, which is Congress. And this leads me to kind of think about like what actually happened here, even if we're relatively charitable to Donald Trump and say, okay, maybe Donald Trump did not sit down and decide, I, either because I owe it to Russia because of some leverage they have over me, or because I'm of a conspiratorial bent and just want to like, help Russia, who I love for unknown reasons, out. Like, sat, sit down and decide, you know, what I'm going to do during this campaign is corruptly and illicitly liaise with the Russians in order to do my election opponent harm and then lie about it and assume that I can cover that up with my authority as president. If we suppose that there was not like that level of self-conscious pre-planned execution of a knowingly illegal conspiracy here, like what do we know almost certainly happened? We have a presidential campaign that because of its amateurishness was wide open to compromise. Donald Trump uh, was surrounded by, because he couldn't, uh, as a result of his relations with the Republican Party, recruit the normal group of people that you would to staff up the foreign policy and national security side of your campaign. He had a rogues gallery of inexperienced people, people with bad judgment, people who had no idea what they were doing, people like Papadopoulos, people like Page, people like Mike Flynn. Um, he made it known to the world that these were his advisors. As you would then expect, Russian intelligence descended upon, upon all of these people in order to see if they could compromise them, as I imagine they do with any presidential campaign. But in most instances, they are rebuffed summarily because the people who staff such campaigns know what that looks like and know that it will be really bad for them to get involved in it. Whereas these jokers did not have uh, you know, that level of sense or, or experience, etc. Um, so, you know, they therefore do things like Donald Trump Jr. did, which is send emails saying, like, I forget the exact phrase, like, this is great or this is amazing uh, in response to emails offering him dirt on Hillary Clinton. For, and they attend meetings with Russian, uh, w with Russian factotums in order to, in order to try and like, get at the acknowledged uh, uh, aim, which is, which is material to hurt, the, to hurt Donald Trump's opponent. So, like, what we have 
best case scenario here is a number of people who have made really bad judgment calls reacting to a deliberate Russian attempt to compromise uh, their campaign in the broader context of a known Russian attempt to move the ball with regard to the election as a whole. So at the end of the election, right, Donald Trump has won. All the intelligence services, every every one of them without dissent is saying, like, what we need here uh, is a really serious uh, top-to-tail reflection on what happened during this election campaign because Russia did something really bad and this is a grievous threat to American democracy and institutions and we now need to um, devote ourselves to finding out every last bit of it and preparing ourselves to not let it happen again. Because he is so psychically bound up with the importance of his great victory and the idea that it would be tainted in any way by the suggestion that any other actor, especially an outside actor, like, contributed to bring it about. Donald Trump just can't allow that to be acknowledged, no matter how much the facts support it, no matter how determined other people are to, 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 su- to suggest it. So like, as this investigation gets, gets up and running, it seems like what he, did, what he has done may not necessarily be um, that he committed a crime of conspiracy and is now seeking to cover it up. But what he definitely appears to have done is attempt to use all of the powers of the presidency to prevent an extremely necessary investigation into Russian efforts to compromise the election of 2016 and, and interfere in it. And therefore, even if there is no underlying crime as such, because there was not at least on the level of Donald Trump himself, a conspiracy with Russia, there is a crime in itself of using the power of the presidency to prevent an investigation into uh, uh, something as serious as the counterintelligence threat that was manifested in the form of this Russian intervention. So the original Russia investigation, lest we forget, by the FBI was not necessarily a criminal investigation. It was a counterintelligence investigation, which does not often end up with criminal charges to simply say, look, what happened here? What lessons do we need to draw? And Donald Trump seems to have thrust himself across that to obstruct it at every level because he's just, um, as I said, even in the absence of a crime, too proud to allow to allow even the suggestion that his victory was anything other than 100% legitimate to, um, to, to creep into the public consciousness regardless of the consequences. I guess to, to underline that, I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say is that the suggestion is sometimes that obstruction of justice is the uh, not really a crime crime that you get people for when you can't prove they actually did anything wrong. But in this case, the underlying thing that was being investigated was not necessarily a criminal thing per se. It was just uh, a massive compromising of American institutions, and obstructing the investigation of that is, is pretty serious too, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you where you get to, which is, look, obstruction of justice is, you know, eventually they got Capone not on bumping off all his opponents, but they got him on tax evasion. Here, putting the whole thing together in terms of the extent of Russian interference and Trump knowledge, you just simply get the easy path right now is they've got him banged to rights on obstruction of justice. And I do think they have him. But where I would slightly differ with you and where I think this opens up the wider politics is, is there the reason why the obstruction of justice occurs is because there's too many loose threads, which come a little bit later 
in the narrative. So let me explain. Let's do a, let's do a hypothetical that when Michael Flynn, who was National Security Advisor, is pushed out of the White House because of his own contacts with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, mm-hmm. let's do you know a, a hypothetical that the White House just cooperates with the investigation at that point. They say, look, Flynn did something incorrect. We want to investigate just like you do how far this went and, and that they cooperate. And instead, and that they don't fire James Comey, uh, that they don't then, or Trump does not then attempt to fire Robert Mueller. Let's assume the cooperation. The problem is, is that consider the threads that are out there that we don't know the full story to. Example, um, Jeff Sessions, now the Attorney General, meeting the Russian ambassador on uh, multiple occasions in 2016, including a meeting in September 2016, which is of great interest. Uh, consider, for example, after the election, Jared Kushner meeting with the dev- with the head of the Ru- a Russian state bank, Sergei Gorkov, probably for a discussion of financial matters, whether or not it was financial matters in terms of helping Kushner with a huge debt on a New York City skyscraper or more broadly financial links, including the sale of uh, part of the Russian's oil company, Rosneft. That's open-ended. Consider the threads, which is somebody told Michael Flynn to talk to the Russian ambassador at the end of December 2016, mm-hmm. probably Jared Kushner and another advisor named K.T. McFarland. There were just too many loose threads to let this investigation run. And so that's why they tried to but the thing that I can, The thing that I can never really – every time I hear people talk about um, like where this ends, who might get charged, with what exactly, it seems to be very hard – to tie the kinds of things, at least as far as we know them at present, that people involved in the Trump campaign or administration did with regard to Russia, to any laws that in any plausible way might end might end in conviction. So it feels like a huge database of activities like agreeing to meetings with shady Russian lawyers or talking to the Russian ambassador and then lying about the fact that you've done it um, – uh, to the vice president yeah. are being revealed and by any normal evaluation of the appropriate norms of uh, like serious uh, people on a presidential campaign that's about to be victorious or uh, an administration that's about to come into office, like this behavior is outrageous and is not at all the kind of conduct that any healthy democracy should be allowed to be willing to tolerate in, in those in high office. But it's not necessarily illegal. What seems to have become the, the, the huge legal liability is that they just have lied at every turn about exactly who did what and when, which if you do it to the FBI, uh, unlike lying to everybody else, which you know comes as easy as breathing to Donald Trump and his aides, it seems, is a crime. Well, again, Adam, remember that they've already got Jared Kushner technically on a misdemeanor, which is not reporting his contacts with foreign officials when he was supposed to get White House security mm-hmm. clearance. I mean, they've got him on that. That's the thing. But suppose he had. That's the thing. If they were, if they were just, if they were just willing to say we had an enormous number of meetings with Russians, and you know. It, I, I think the, the, the issue is that if this campaign was actually compromised in a full penetration, conscious conspiracy way by the mm-hmm. Russians, most of the meetings and interactions that we are aggregating to say something shady happened yeah. don't make a lot of sense. <laughs> For example, why do you need to have uh, like meetings uh, with lawyers that no one seems to really uh, think – 
go anywhere, where people seem confused about the purpose that happen in a disorganized, haphazard way, initiated as a result of cold calls to friends of friends, if you actually already have what some people seem to posit is the case, which is like deep Russian penetration of the Trump campaign from day one. It's, it, it looks a lot more like a bunch of people who don't know what the hell they're doing responding in a ridiculously amateurish and self-compromising way to Russian feelers rather than people coordinating yeah. in a productive and effective way in an ongoing conspiracy, doesn't but, it? But very few conspiracies actually work like clockwork from the time that they carry out their plans to the time that they might wind up in court. Most conspiracies are screw-ups, cock-ups, and bumbling. Just because you bumble doesn't get you off the criminal hook certainly doesn't get you off the political hook. I, I think we're roughly in accord here that um, this is not like a group of masterminds that help the Russians implement a plot. This is more, in fact, that these guys, almost like an extension of Carter Page, um, became unwitting agents of influence mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what the Russians did, but it doesn't make them less culpable for that. I think... No, it doesn't make them any less morally culpable or any less politically culpable. But I, I, again, I still struggle to work out how a lot of the things that we can readily acknowledge are highly inappropriate actions are going to be uh, hung yeah. around a law that lands people in court. If Russian money wound up in this campaign, either before or after the election, then you've got something which is serious. But it takes a long time to put together that financial information, which is why we don't hear as much about it in the press. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the trail, Let, let's talk a little bit about the wider politics, the, where we go forward now, right? Uh, because I want to sort of uh, put this point out there for you. And that is, in talking about all the ins and outs of this, what I'm struck about, especially in the past week, is I think we're in the biggest constitutional crisis. Um, I think this is now bigger than Watergate. So therefore, I argue the biggest constitutional crisis in American history since the Civil War. Um, when you have Donald Trump, and he just, uh, as we were coming in to, to record today, has put out another tweet which calls uh, Democratic representatives liars and leakers, which levels that accusation against former heads of intelligence agencies, heads of the CIA, heads of the Directorate of National Intelligence, uh, heads of the FBI. You know, this, this ends in a way where either Trump wins or the system wins, and there is no in-between on it. Um, and I, I find it striking how we, from a situation of bumbling, as you quite well put it, have gotten to this point, which this is not bumbling. This is deliberate now, mm -hmm. that in order for Trump to save himself, he is willing to take down any U.S. government agency, and that some Republicans in Congress are complicit that. Well, that's that's where I would definitely like to, to bang my regular drum, which is that Donald Trump is not capable alone of causing most of the harm that it now seems likely his presidency will end up doing. He's only able to do it because he has uh, helping him a bunch of people who – you know, were not necessarily allies of Donald Trump at any point prior to his securing the Republican uh, nomination. Indeed, many cases were, were vocal critics, but who have made a strategic decision that it is in their political interests to sacrifice everything else to covering for him with regard to this stuff. And uh, Devin Nunes is a, a, a classic 
example of this. Like, he's not a fire-breathing, uh, anti-immigration, crypto-white nationalist figure uh, who has been waiting all his hungry political life for Donald Trump to come into power and, like, represent all he believes in. Like, he's just, a, a, it would seem, a not particularly uh, impressive or distinguished uh, mid-tier Republican congressional functionary who has been deployed by Paul Ryan to perform the, the Speaker of the House of Representatives to perform the function of squirting squid ink into the water uh, of the House investigation into the, in, into the Russia connection in order to try and, you know, turn it into a, he said, she said, uh, back and forth rather than a forensic investigation of who did what and when and how, and how appropriate it was. Um, and at, 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 at the price, inevitably, of the total breakdown of function and trust in what are supposed to be the the the, the mechanisms of oversight that are at the heart of healthy American good governance. You know, so, for example, in this instance, you know, we have a set of committees, the purpose of which is to oversee uh, in a way that balances necess- necessary secrecy with the obligations to transparency of democratic government, the intelligence services of the country. You know, we all know that the United States has a ridiculously shady history of dysfunction and cover-up in its intelligence services. In the 1970s, this was all, all this trash was put on the table about like assassinations and secret weapons programs and, um, you know, unbelievably inappropriate activities on the part of the you know the real deep state I guess you might say back when it existed and we came up with mechanisms like the House Intelligence Committee to try and basically say okay look these secretive institutions that consider themselves to have a duty to do all sorts of ethically questionable uh, stuff in the dark in order to advance the national interest need to be brought into some kind of accountability, but they can't do their job if everything they do is publicly known. So our way around that is that we will get a bipartisan selection of serious people who will be allowed access to information that others aren't about what they do, about what these intelligence services do, in order to then hold them to account. So how this committee is supposed to work is the intelligence services explain some of the stuff they do, provide some of the raw information about their intelligence and counterintelligence activities on the supposition that it will be used soberly and responsibly for the purposes of holding them account and making good national policy by the people who, who, who it's given to. And what Devin Nunes has done for no other reason than to try and, it seems, uh, defend a president who advertises his own unfitness for office every day is... Uh, override the dire pleas and warnings of those very intelligence and, and, and law enforcement agencies to throw a bunch of their, uh, of their raw material on the table, to go through the warrants they're applying for and the basis on which they're applying for them for counterintelligence purposes. Um, and how, how are these institutions supposed to continue to function when the people who need to provide the information to them for them to do their job 
will have such strong basis to believe that the people that can't that, that, that are asking for the information cannot be trusted with it. Like, what is the what is the FBI and the CIA and anybody else's reaction going to be the next time Devin Nunes or equivalent says we want to see some super top secret stuff? Uh, if this is if this is how apparently it's going to be handled as soon as momentary partisan convenience uh, comes into play, or the reaction of any foreign intelligence service or foreign diplomatic service that's working with the Americans who fear that their information will be presented. I mean, I want to be very clear here. Devin Nunes, we can guess at his motives. I would suggest perhaps opportunism. Uh, As a member of the Trump transition team, so gets himself in well before the inauguration, then screws up big time in March as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee over the Trump-Russia hearings. And I want to be very clear what I'm saying here because he coordinated with the White House on a possible dissemination of false information, namely that Barack Obama had wiretapped Trump Tower. He got busted for meeting officials in the White House over that, and he formally recused himself from the investigation because of that. But in fact, he didn't recuse himself. What he has then done has spent the next nine months, whether on his own accord or working at the behest of the White House, Trying to undermine the investigation. Right, it's like, he got, stu- it's like he got study leave and decided yeah. to go off and spend the time digging around yeah. in the material he has access to to, to, to produce yeah. this uh, like ramshackle jury rigged right. Uh, uh, memo. Right, and then Devin Nunes, as you say, might be quote mid level, although someone put him in t- as chair of the committee at some point for some reason. But then you have other senior Republicans, someone like a Kevin McCarthy, very close to the Trump White House, or even Paul Ryan themselves who not only excuse the behavior and tolerate it, they help promote it. They, you know, they support the decision to release this memo uh, that you've seen very few senators. There's only two I can think of off the top of my head on the GOP side, John McCain and John Thune uh, of uh, South Dakota, who have said, look, we really shouldn't be crossing over into areas of national security for this type of political gain. And no wonder that you then have, and we've had the reports come out in recent days, reporting demoralized staff in the FBI, career staff, demoralized staff in other agencies who simply think, basically games up, that you do not have a responsible executive anymore. Uh, whether this is curbed, because you're now basically or at the last redoubt, is, is Robert Mueller, is, is whether Mueller, who will be able to carry out a full and frank Russian investigation, and the one gleaming ray of light is is that Republicans who have tried to shield Nunes backed away yesterday in terms of saying, all right, all right, there may be a problem with the FBI, but the Russian investigation should not be uh, curbed just because of this uh, rather dodgy uh, memorandum that we're circulating. It's time for number of the week, the round uh, of distractionary interlude, where we take a number tied to a news story and uh, give a little bit of brief chatter about it. Scott, have you brought a number to the table for us? My number of the week is zero. And zero are the number of times that Theresa May made any public reference to human rights, issues of justice and responsibility during her recent visit to China. Uh, including taking tea with uh, the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping. Now, in itself, I don't think that's unusual. There's no need to necessarily put this into a confrontation with the Chinese leadership who are quite sensitive on the issue of human rights. 
whether it be political dissidents, whether it be the issue of Tibet, for example. Uh, we've had other leaders who have been very softly, softly when they've met uh, in Beijing with Chinese counterparts. Uh, but here I choose this number of the week, dear listener, to give you what I think is the fairly clear-cut motivation beyond this, and that is that Theresa May was not there just simply to uh, be very polite and very charming in her own way, but you are now seeing the diplomatic ramifications of Brexit or what is likely to be Brexit in full flow. Uh, it, you know, Newspapers were not even uh, gentle about this. And then the Chinese newspapers, as they celebrated the fact that the issue had not come up, some British newspapers, as they expressed a bit of regret, are noting that the prime minister's motivation primarily was to whip up trade or to establish trade links with the Chinese and a lot of Chinese investment into the U.K., uh, in light of the fact that the U.K. is going to have to find that type of foreign linkage somewhere outside the EU come, we think, March 2019. Uh, we had seen similar, that Theresa May had raised the issue of human rights, let me think, uh, zero times in Saudi Arabia in recent trips. And so what is quite clear here, I think, is, is that Britain, which has at least given the appearances in recent years of having concerns over human rights, uh, that this is now uh, one of the, um, if not casualties, incidentals of what is now an economics first game uh, as we try to avoid the Brexit cliff. My number of the week is 600,000. Uh, that is the number of illegal immigrants that Silvio Berlusconi uh, has promised will be deported from Italy if his center-right coalition succeeds in coming to power in the election that's due on March the 4th. Um, I, I bring this up for two reasons. First of all, because my jaw hit the floor when I discovered that Silvio Berlusconi is apparently still a frontline political force in Italy. He is now 81. Uh, he has more than once left government with a, a cloud of uh, recrimination and dubious scandal and corruption hovering swiftly uh, and voluminously behind him. But apparently, uh, this is no bar to continuing to seek high office, so he's, uh, he's trying to do it again. Secondly, it's interesting to see how the times merge with old stager kind of figures in the sense that you know, Silvio Berlusconi has obviously been in office multiple times. He has always been one to spot whatever bandwagon it's best to hitch his agenda to in order to get himself into power because he's very clearly one of those people who cares primarily about that rather than about achieving any particular programmatic set of ideas. So it is a clear sign of the times that Silvio Berlusconi, cynic extraordinaire, uh, has spotted that this is the kind of pledge that apparently is likely to get you somewhere in the politics of uh, politics of 2018. Um, if you want, despite a disgraceful track record of corruption and do-nothing leadership, to return to power these days, apparently saying that there are an incredibly large number of illegal immigrants and that you're the man to take a, a, a billy club to cracking down on that uh, is the way to get purchase. Silvio Berlusconi, um, never a trailblazer, always a weather vane, and displaying some pretty, uh, some pretty bad signs for both the Times and Italy at the moment, I think. Okay, so for part two, I think what we are going to do is turn away from the substance of what exactly 
this memo alleged and its relevance to the Russia investigation and talk more about the memo as a media phenomenon because it it, it came to all of our attention that this memo existed through a massive surge of online activism and insistent advocacy uh, both by a certain kind of fringe journalist, uh, then increasingly mainstream conservative journalists, and also the mobilized body of like the, the Trumpist movement online, etc., all under the hashtag, release the memo. Maybe it feels like a million years ago, but I think it was probably like two weeks or less ago that this bubble started to, to inflate. Um, and it, it, it had all the like the hallmarks of many of the this disturbing phenomena of this nature in, in, in modern times, which is to say that it, it seemed to be drummed up in an orchestrated way by some hard-right organs, including places like Breitbart. It moved into the mainstream via Fox News, particularly Sean Hannity's program uh, on, on that uh, channel. And it seems to have been inflated in terms of its online reach by the intervention of a enormous number of bots, which is to say online uh, fake social media accounts. Well, they're real social media accounts, but not ones that correspond to actually existing people that can serve as a force multiplier and volume magnifier for uh, whatever it is they happen to alight on at any given time on, on, on Twitter and elsewhere. You know, The owners and operators of those bots are a matter of some speculation. Some might tie it to our previous discussion, but nevertheless, it was part of this, uh, it was part of this phenomenon. So, um, what can we what lessons can we should we be drawing from the fact that as a result of this kind of orchestrated maneuver uh, a memo that does not seem by any account to have the content to justify it became the most prominent campaigning cause of the internet especially the right wing internet over the course of a, a relatively short period of time uh, to actually produce policy change within a week and a half. Now, this is this is the 21st century version of of the PR campaign of past decades. But I think it's fascinating the way that it's come about in terms of that intersection between what you have called activism and what I might more cynically call um, state political warfare. And let me be very clear here. It's, it's still uncertain who came up with the hashtag release the memo at a time when we know that the memo was being prepared because it has been prepared over the course of weeks and indeed over a period of months uh, by certain staffers around Devin Nunes. But what happened specifically last month is that in the course of a day or two, the use of the hashtag jumped by more than 250,000%. If you can try to imagine that number, uh, this is measured, for example, by uh, Hamilton 68, an extremely good tracker of online trends. And in particular, the accounts that were using the hashtag were a number of accounts uh, that have been associated in the past with Russian state campaigns. Uh, what the broad overlay for this, without sounding too conspiratorial, but at least trying to play connect the dots, is, is of course, is that the Russian state has been very good at trying to take advantage of the way we change our communication through a platform like Twitter or like Facebook by finding a hub, putting out a hub that everyone can gravitate around. It just so happens that in this case, as in a couple of others, that another group which has been very good at mobilizing around certain hashtags happens to be the alt-right. 
And so this curious alliance um, between Russian allied accounts and those that would be connected with the Breitbart, uh, with conspiracy outlets like Infowars, like Prison Planet, they start to whip this up. Now, was the White House at the head of this uh, through Dan Scavino, the social media director, or did the White House just happen to notice it and sort of contribute to the wave? You know, that we'd have to do a little bit further more work on. But there's no doubt that we've tended to think that the 21st century media revolution, quite rightly, is one of fragmentation and niche, and people go to their corners. But the nature of politics is you've got to pull people back in from their corners to try to mobilize them. And the way that this is being done now is not necessarily through the, quote, traditional mainstream outlets, but the way that outlets in various corners of the Internet or working the Internet, whether it's the Russians or the alt-right, then connect up, say, with a Fox News uh, to drive this to supposedly be front and center uh, for weeks in advance of the event that they are proclaiming. Hmm. I mean, I... I've I've been wrestling for a while with a question that may not have a clear-cut answer, <laughs> which is like, where the balance lies in this moment when we talk a lot about fake news between uh, people being misinformed versus people actively embracing argument in bad faith, which is to say... There is one version of what the problem is right now, which is which is that like large amounts of uh, the population are fed information, especially through conservative news channels, that is not at the best of times a balanced and context-heavy presentation of the facts, and has increasingly slided over into being straight up untrue. And as a consequence, because they're basing themselves on these misunderstandings about the facts, they arrive at conclusions that are wrong or misguided, which then they throw themselves with enthusiasm into advocating for in the the public sphere. So, like, the problem is that, you know, there is a broken mechanism, possibly cynically broken by malevolent actors, for getting the right information to the population. And we need to worry about how to find better ways to get true facts and balanced analysis in the eyes and ears of of the people. Because basically, that's what they really want and think they have. And if, if if we can fix the delivery mechanisms, we can deal with the issue. Then there's another part of me that thinks that like that gives too much credit, at least in one regard, to the consuming audience here. That basically what you have is a set of actually pretty self-conscious tribal loyalties that people, you know, uh, have their team and they have the people who at any given time are the avatars of that team. They like Donald Trump. And basically they see it as the job of the media that they consume to not look at whatever the facts at any given time may be and then like cross-reference them with the positions that are being taken and the, and the statements being made by the people on their team and like 
inform them about how well they stack up. It's to like compile like a lawyer's brief, the best facts you can, sometimes straining the definition of what a fact is to do so, that will back up whatever the position happens to be of the of the people that you that you support. You know, so it's not it used to be in, in the romantic version of how ideological divergence worked. Like it, it used to be that basically you would have one group of people who were like they would articulate, here are our principles and here are the policies that will advance those principles. And we believe that if we do X, it will achieve Y. So we would like to do that. Please vote for us. Uh, you know, and if you're a liberal, the, your version of that is, well, I think uh, we want health care for everybody, so we should have higher taxes and like, government intervention in that marketplace. And if you're a conservative, it's like, well, I think people should, uh, we should have a society that prioritizes low taxes and individual freedom and bootstrapping, so we should have a, you know, an insurance market where only people with money can people with money can buy better coverage and people who haven't got money can, you know, uh, be an example to other people to work harder and get the money they need for their health insurance or whatever. Whereas now we seem to have moved into a space where people just willfully, uh, they don't have those kinds of arguments anymore. They, 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 they just straight up lie. So they don't say, you know, I, 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 I don't believe in those goals, so I will, um, I, I advocate a different policy agenda. They'll go, oh, well, we'd like to cut taxes and remove all regulation on healthcare, and the consequence will be that everybody will get much better healthcare, much more affordably. Well, similarly with this Russia thing, they can't go, oh, like Donald Trump had a hugely disorganized campaign that was to some degree complicit in facilitating Russian intervention in the uh, election, but I don't care because Donald Trump is a you know reactionary race baiter and that gratifies my sensibilities. So you know I I I, I, I um you know I've made a choice about my priorities there. They've got a reverse engineer. They don't want to. They don't want to do that. They want, but they want to reverse engineer whatever the facts would need to be in order to justify where they've decided they have to end up, which is that their guy is fine because he can't, by definition, do anything wrong. So whatever he has done and whatever he has said, the facts simply must support that. And that's like, that that flips the causality a little bit. Like, sure, there is manipulation and there is misinformation being targeted at um, you know, for example, the Republican base in order to get them on side. But there's also just such a deep hunger for that misinformation and for those misrepresentations. And when they're not provided, there is a kind of a mixture of confusion and rage that results that like that punishes anybody who attempts to simply provide a balanced, uh, a balanced diet. And that make, creates such strong incentives for someone else to then come along and eat the lunch of whoever is providing moderation uh, by, by giving the base whatever it wants that, I don't know, I, I think what I, I guess what I'm getting at is that argument in bad faith and motivated reasoning has proliferated to such an extent that I don't think we can sustain um, the the most charitable narratives about the audience for it out there. I, I think there is a degree of knowing embrace of being uh, of, of, of untruth on the part of the consumers of this stuff. Well, Do you think so, Scott? Without making any judgment about the audience. Um, it so happens I, I teach a course on this, and we work with students on new media and politics, and I think there has been a shift. Um, about 50 years ago, very, very good French sociologist named Jacques Alliot said, look, the, the issue we have here is, is not that we don't have enough information. Uh, so it's not just like you know dumb people or susceptible propaganda. 
He says it's actually thinking people are susceptible to propaganda because there's too much information. Hmm. And we have to sort of make our choices. We don't have enough time to go through it all in resources. But Elio was still working from the idea that we still sift through some information, even though it might suit the way that we're you know, leaning in terms of the way we've been socialized. I think the shift here now is, is that we've gone straight. We've gone beyond information uh, simply to emotive positions, conspiratorial positions. Uh, and that what we used to call confirmation bias, which still said, well, we still work with information. You're well beyond confirmation right. that, that's bias. That's where you believe something's true, so you go looking for the yeah. evidence that will stack it yeah. up. But you're now gone, you've now gone well beyond actually looking for evidence. I mean, the way that we talked about the Nunes memo, and that is, you know, I believe that the FBI is trying to do down Donald Trump, and so I'm going to create this half-assed memo to support it. Right, like, and like the Nunes memo is the kind of document that uh, – uh, like a mob lawyer might construct mm. to provide the best possible version of events to support like, his employer. It is not the kind of document that someone with a good faith commitment to establishing what the facts are would mm. construct. And the problem is that Devin Nunes is in a job, the whole purpose of which is to, to lean into the part of being an elected official that, that prioritizes trying to do, do that second thing. Yeah, and and. What has happened is that on top of this, in terms of the politics, that outlets that do try to make a good faith effort to bring in information, you know, sometimes I disagree with some of them, but, you know, say a Washington Post, a New York Times, um, to an extent CNN, which has some very good journalists, they get trashed as fake news. They get trashed as fake media precisely because you want to rule them out. You You don't want that information process to be there. You want your emotive camp to remain firm. And I know this happens on the left as well as in Trump land, but just to keep on with Trump land, what happens then is is that while the Washington Post and New York Times push that aside, you get an outlet like InfoWars, which even 15 years ago would have been considered a crackpot site, spreading conspiracy theories like the Bush administration blew up the World Trade Center on 9-11. InfoWars now moved into the center because even though it is completely fact-free, even though it is manipulative, even though it is built really on lies and distortions, it will give you a headline that you'll buy into immediately. Hmm. And that is sort of reinforced, of course, then by a social media environment such as Twitter, when within the space of 280 characters, if you used to use them, you don't have the space to lay out all the information, all the argument, so you just lay out your conclusion, your interpretation, and have Hmm. people just follow that instead. So I had a very close friend who I was debating with when I was in the States last month, and um, I said, look, you know, here's the information about Russian interference in the election. And finally, this close friend said, look, I don't care if Russia interfered in the, in the election. I hate Hillary Clinton. And so that jump to interpretation, or that jump, we should say, to emotion. Mm-hmm. I hate Hillary Clinton, so everything else goes away. That's, that's the way that some politics runs for some people now. I think the real, since this is U.S.-focused, I'll say with the U.S., but I think it's true in other countries such as the one that we're in, the real struggle over the next generation is going to be whether we can regather ourselves and get literate, get literate in terms of the way that media operates and seek out information, or whether we just get carried along by the wave and carried along by the politics to wherever the wherever the cul-de-sac or worse awaits us. I mean, I'm at this time when norms are being emphasized a lot as an important thing, I feel like one of the norms that we really ought to be trying to assert healthily, not just in, in public life, but 
like, more broadly within society, I think, is that there should be some cost to the esteem in which people hold you if it appears that basically you have no filter with regard to the factual accuracy of the stuff that you come out with simply because it's like ideologically convenient to you. And it seems like, you know, it is definitely a bigger problem, and certainly the policies it's facilitating are a bigger problem mm-hmm. on the right. But the habits of mind are clearly not um, solely concentrated on the right of the political spectrum. You know, so you know, for example, if I'm hanging out in the break room with a bunch of uh, academics and/or students at the University of Birmingham, and I say. Uh, Hey, I think that uh, I think that 9/11 wasn't what it was reported as being because steel beams like don't melt mm. at that temperature, right? Like people's reaction will be horrified, will be horror because you know they, they will conclude that I am, you know, in the grip of some. Uh, delusion that I find enticing because I, you know, have the political values we would associate with 9/11 conspiracism. You know, it's like if I say that, so therefore I know the Jews did it or something like that. Whereas if I say, you know, I believe that Russian intelligence has a video of Donald Trump paying sex workers to pee on a bed uh, because Donald because because Barack Obama like once stayed in that room and he's the kind of like crazy. Um, hate-fueled person who would who, who would do that, and I have nothing to base that on other than like a thing a guy said to a guy said to a guy in Russia that found its way into in, into a report. Like I feel like there's no cost to me. I feel like I could I could probably get a good jovial conversation going about how everyone like thinks you know well maybe it's true or maybe it's not, but it's the kind of thing that could be true and like it you know it, it contains a truth or something like that, and isn't that what matters? To which my answer is no. It really, it really, like, either it did or it didn't happen. And uh, it's unwise for us to pass it around as though, uh, uh, you know, as though it is true if we don't think that it is. Now, that's a trivial and silly example, um, except perhaps to Donald Trump, who is obsessed and infuriated by it. But I think it's important um, that we, you know, just tell people who come out with slanted lies to knock it off more often than it feels like we do anymore. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I agree it's not just the right or the left. I mean, as you know, on a day-to-day basis, I'm scrambling with people from the left who will deny some of the worst uh, war crimes of the 21st century so far, uh, such as the mass killing of civilians in Syria. And they'll say, oh, no, no it all must be U.S. imperialism or British imperialism. Like, well, no, it's not. It's the Bashar al-Assad and his folks. So this isn't a right versus left issue. I think the question here, though, is, and this is where I differ with you a little bit, Adam, I don't think we're going to come up and get punishment on folks for doing this type of thing because at one level this is part of the exercise of power. Power doesn't rely on the truth. Power relies on distortion and making you believe distortion. Indeed, well, yeah, one of the greatest displays of power can be forcing people to, you know, repeat things that they know to be untrue. Yeah, except we're nice people, so we're never going to you know, exercise our power in that bad way. I think but it's it, not the mission of a university, hopefully, uh, to, no, exactly. to, to row in behind that particular manifestation no. of power. But I think uh, at the same time, and this is just where I come from, and again, I have the good fortune to be able to work with this on a weekly basis uh, with Connor as well as with students. 
it is that idea of literacy that at least at a personal level you put yourself in a position where you don't feel at the behest of just following the trail but just take that step back and, and read and so on. You know, do I think that's going to have overnight effect? No, absolutely not. I think uh, the what in effect is political warfare, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, that there are so many people playing at it and so on. But I do think that paradoxically um, – the level of dislocation has been so great that at some point I think you're going to find people say, look, we've got to have a better way on this. We've got to have a better way forward. And so in my own utopian get-out, I think as we're discussing right now, there are ways to work through these issues. You just have to have people having the confidence that they don't get lost in the flood of misinformation uh, to be able to have some point to start from. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think the the, the idea that a norm of uh, it being – you know, just a bad thing to believe and propagate nonsense is is one that we would do well to well, as we do at a university to some extent try to try to cultivate and emphasize that but you know to go back to that that issue about the consumers of some of this uh, toxic ideologically fueled news agenda, I feel like Part of the solution, part not far from all the solution, because there are many pressures and factors. But part of the solution is just is just going to have to be uh, our collective social decision that it is frowned upon to believe nonsense, and even more frowned upon to repeat it knowingly, at least. And then maybe maybe step by step by inches, we can make progress back towards a world whereby even if people like have highly ideological worldviews and want to achieve unpopular things in terms of policies on the basis of them, they at least feel the need to aggregate true facts and logical reasoning in order to advance that agenda rather than just uh, saying anything that they possibly can to, to get uh, to get people to go along with it. Fully agree. Call a troll a troll, politely, and then <laughs> go out and issue a better statement than that person has. Right. I think we've, we've, that's quite a positive note for us to end on, exhortatory perhaps, uh, but relative to some of the ones we sometimes do. I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter, at Poll Worldview, and please do. Uh, please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. We want you to do that. really want you to leave us a rating, leave us a comment, uh, uh, share us on social media, tell people to listen to us. We'd appreciate that enormously because it helps others discover the podcast, and that's good for them, good for us, good for everybody. Um, you can also Come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Paul Worldview. Um, see article links there, uh, post your own comments, etc. Um, our participant today, uh, if you don't count me, has been Scott Lucas. Where can we find you on social media, Scott? So Scott Lucas underscore EA on Twitter and on the world's best little small website for uh, political news and analysis, EA Worldview. EAWorldview.com. Well, we're now past 365 days of Trump, right? You're doing a daily po- update on, on the Trump presidency uh, every day, and uh, we, we are now in the second lap of the day circuit 381, with regard yeah. to that. Uh, I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, that's uh, Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook, or the one who's standing next to Lyndon Johnson in his photo, if you want to, to follow me there. I'm also on Twitter, at Adam James Quinn, but uh, Twitter is for trolls and bots. Come and, come and follow me on Facebook. It's a much better place to hang out. Our producer is Connor McKenna. Uh, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. Thank you to the Pulsus Good Ideas Fund for their support. We really appreciate it. We'll be back soon. We hope you will be too. Bye. Hang in there, good folks.